Today we're beginning a brand new series, and this is going to take us all the way up to the week before Christmas. I'm letting you know right now, we're not doing a normal Christmas series this year. This is always kind of my MO, that if since I've been here, I do something completely different every year around the Christmas time, because we have people who attend church from between like Thanksgiving and Christmas, that that's really the only time of the year that they attend. So why do we always preach the exact same message to them over and over and over again? I like messing with people. Some of you are still trying to figure out, like, wait, we did four songs this morning instead of three, and you already did the announcements in between the third and the fourth song, so what happens at the end? I got your mind all, all turned around in circles. That's, that's my joy, and it's my privilege, and it's my honor to mess with you every single week. But so this year, we're going to be taking this current series all the way up to the week before Christmas. In a minute, you're going to understand why I'm doing what I'm doing. But this series is called Sure Foundations, and we're going to be talking about why we believe what we believe. How many of you know it's important to know what you believe and why you believe it? That ability to communicate it so often when we have people even at toddler time where they're like, well, what does your church believe? I want every one of you to be able to say, well, this is what my church believes and this is why we believe it. And so we're going to go through the next nine weeks. We're gonna, the Assemblies of God has 16 fundamental truths. I'm going to kind of put them into group, uh, groupings, and some weeks it'll be one, and some weeks it'll be up to four, and we're going to put them all together, and we're going to call them foundations that we're going to build our life on. And today we're going to be talking about the scriptures being inspired and what that means. Next week we're going to be talking about the idea that there is one true God and the deity or the divine character of Jesus. In the third week, we're going to be discussing the fall of man and the plan of salvation. How many of you are glad that there was a plan? And God knew that, hey, man's not going to be able to do this on their own, so I'm going to already have a plan. That God has a plan A, that God was not surprised but was ready to meet us in our, in our falling. In the, the fourth week, we're going to discuss the ordinances of the church, communion and water baptism. This is how I love how God has his hand all over things. Just the way it laid out without me even looking at it, that happens to be the week we were already scheduled to do communion anyways. Perfect. Uh, then in week five, we're going to be discussing the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the initial physical evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In week six, we're going to be discussing sanctification, the process of being made holy. And I want you to hear this too. Through the course of this series, when I use the big churchy words, I'm going to break them down so you understand what the big churchy words are. How many of you, you remember like in middle school, high school, when you had to do all those like definition vocabulary tests and you had to put down an answer, but you couldn't use the answer of the definition in the definition? Like, what is a car? A car is a car. You didn't define anything. You just said what it was. And so in the, the process of this, I don't want to, to say sanctification. Yeah, I know, I know what that word means. No, we're going to break it down because I want you to be able to understand it. I want Because here's the thing. If you can teach it to someone else, that's when you understand it. If you walk out of here like, I, th I think I know what that meant, but I can't really explain it to someone else. My goal is that when you leave here every single week, that you would be able to explain to somebody else what you learned in practical terms. You may not remember every single little detail. You may not be able to remember everything. That's why we have youtube.com slash the Shores Church, so you can go back and watch it after the fact or point people towards it. In week seven, we're going to be discussing the church and its mission because we have a great mission in front of us to seek and save the, the people that are lost because Jesus Christ has already went to the cross on their behalf and Jesus needs to get what he paid for. Okay, six of you agree with that. We need to make sure that Jesus gets what he paid for, right? 
And then in week eight, we're going to be discussing divine healing because we believe that if it's in the Bible, it's for today. And that if God could heal in biblical times, that God can heal today. Okay, about ten of you. We believe that God can heal today. We believe that God can heal today. There we go. We're getting a little bit more excited. And in week nine, we're going to be discussing the blessed hope, which is the rapture, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, where he's going to come and reign for a thousand years, the final judgment, the new heavens and the new earth. And we're going to put all of that into one particular week, which the next week then is Christmas. Because when we get to Christmas morning, we're going to know the reason why Jesus came. And he came so that he could be the plan of salvation for man who fell. He came so that he could eventually go to the cross so that we could have that divine healing. He came so that he could come again so that we could spend eternity with God in heaven. You see, we're not just going to say, oh, there's little baby Jesus. I love little baby Jesus. But here's the thing you've got to realize about little baby Jesus. If all we ever focus on is, is him, then we deny the power of why Jesus came in the first place. He came as man so that he could die as man and be our sacrifice so that we could be sanctified and made holy and made new in the presence of God. Can't tell I'm excited. Now, here's the thing. You're going to notice some of the weeks in this series, and today's one of them, it's going to feel very practical. It's going to feel very informational. And today's one of those days because I'm going to set the foundation for everything that's going to come through the next eight weeks. You see, if we can't say that the scriptures are inspired, then everything else I'm going to talk about over the next eight weeks doesn't matter. We have to have this kind of a sure foundation that the word of God is the word of God and that it matters, that it is a firm foundation for our lives. Some of you remember that when we built this stage out about two or three years ago, I lose track of it now because 2020 counted as seven years, uh, but when we built it out, I was intentional that there is a Bible that's right underneath my feet right now. Because I wanted to be whoever preached from this platform was preaching on the word of God and standing on God's truth. And I want you to hear this. If you remember, even last week, we had that cart here and I was balancing all of the coffee mugs on my, my fingers. And then I started throwing coffee mugs like a crazy person. It was great. If you missed it, go and watch YouTube. But... Uh, I reference the fact that we have the ability and the choice to build on a solid foundation or a sandy foundation. When we build on a sandy foundation and we try and do it our own way, it's like us holding that tray with uh, all the coffee cups. Eventually, it's going to come crashing down because life is going to hit you at some point in time. I want you to hear the passage that I was referencing last week. This is Matthew 7, uh, starting in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teachings, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. You need to know this. The storm is going to come. Trials are going to come. The rain's going to come. The wind's going to come. But when you build your life on the foundation of God, even if it rocks you a little bit, you're not going anywhere. But when you don't build it on a solid foundation, when you look for all of the different things in, the li in life that you think will make you happy, that you think will help you out, it's like you holding on to that tray. I can keep doing it if I try. Why do you want to even try? Why do we keep trying to tell God, I can do this on my own? 
it's that idea of like a five-year-old saying, well, I'm strong enough, I can carry this. I know at the end of the day, like Annie and the girls went to Cedar Point yesterday. At the end of the day, you know that the, especially Quinn being the, the youngest, is going to be exhausted and tired and is going to need a carry. And so Annie had, as tired as Annie was, Annie had to carry Quinn on her back and Quinn fell asleep on Annie's back. Now here's the thing I want you to realize about that. That's you and I with God. If we keep trying to do it on our own, we get those like, I can't make it anymore. Go on without me. It's been nice knowing you. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna lay down right here and I'm just gonna die. It's bye. We kind of get that imagery of like, it's over for me. But God wants to pick us up and carry us and allow us to rest so that God can get us to what's next. And so that's the point of today is that we need to realize that the scripture is the inspired word of God. And if that's true, and if we can believe that, then everything else that's going to come in this series and everything else that's going to ever come as you study the word of God, you can take as a deeper level of truth. But before we get into really discussing this, I need you to repeat after me, and I want you to even try to come close to my energy level, or I'm going to make you do it again. Heavenly Father, so I'm going to make you do it again. Come on. Come on. Heavenly Father, your word is written in my mind and hidden in my heart. Your word is a lamp onto my feet and a light onto my path. I will seek you with all of my strength. My greatest desire is to be a disciple and to make more disciples. I will live my life according to your word. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. All right, today, foundation number one is that the scriptures are inspired by God and declare his design and plan for mankind. That's like a great spot for an amen. Let's try that again. The scriptures are inspired by God and declare his design and plan for mankind. The scriptures are inspired by God and declare his design and plan for mankind. There we go. That's more like it. So what is exactly what I mean when I say inspiration, that when you look at the Greek, it basically means divinely breathed, that it is God's breath. And as you remember in our last series, we talked about how in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, that Jesus was the Word, but that the Holy Spirit was the breath. So when you were saying uh, it's inspired and that you have this divine breath, it's God the Father speaking the word that is Jesus with the power of the Holy Spirit backing it up to put the word into action. And so for each and every one of us, when we look at this, this is God's word. This is God speaking to you. This is God speaking to me. This is God speaking to all of humanity. That God's word is true. That God's word has power. That God's word is active that God's word can make a difference in your life, but we have to treat it that way. This cannot simply be a book that we just put up on a shelf and just leave it there and say, oh, by the way, I'm coming to church on Sunday. Let me grab this. I, for the longest time, and I love the digital component, and when I uh, am on the go, a lot of times I do have my, my Bible app or I have this or I have that, 
but I got myself back into the, the paper copy because there is something different when you're able to go through and begin notating and writing and being able to go back and say, oh, that's what God spoke to me when I read this. I, I had to change my system because I wanted to be in God's word because it is powerful. I want you to realize something that in the midst of this, that God used human authors that were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write what is in the Bible. That God didn't dictate sentence by sentence, verse by verse to these individuals, but that he guided their, uh, their writing and their ability through the framework of their personalities, their backgrounds, their jobs. And that's why we so, see so many different styles in the Bible. In fact, none of the writers of the Bible were writers by trade. Instead, the Bible was written by kings, shepherds, scribes, military leaders, prophets, a tax collector, a physician, fishermen, and a Pharisee turned into a tent maker. Don't dare tell me that, well, God can't use me. If God can use all of those individuals to accomplish his will and write his word, then he can use you. That when we look at the Bible, the Bible is not one book. The Bible is a collection of different types of books, of different writing styles. It is a library. It's a library that has poetry. It has history. It has law. It has uh, the uh, theological uh, material. It has um, uh, biographies. I mean, it's just, there's so much stuff that's in the Bible. And here's the thing is that the Bible is free from error. Now, here's what I need you to hear. Because some of you are like, well, what about this? And this has been translated in that. Let me answer a question for you that might settle the, the question in your mind or it might settle the question for someone else. When I say that the scripture is completely without error and is divinely inspired, what I'm referring to is the original autographs of the Bible. What do I mean by autograph? The original copy. Now, I'm going to get to something in a moment. You're like, well, isn't the Bible we have today inspired? Uh, yeah, I believe that God can, can uh, still watch over the people that are translating it. But when you say that, the original, 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 that when we say, well, Moses wrote this, that Paul wrote this, that is inspired by the Holy Spirit speaking to those individuals as they pen what God wanted them to pen. Now, yes, if somebody else starts uh, going through and making their own version, I mean, you can, you can go online and, and go on your Bible app and see how many different versions you can, you can find. I can't confirm that every single version of the Bible that you can find out there is going to be accurate. In fact, I know that every version of the Bible that you find out there is not going to be accurate. You've got to do your research. You've got to understand who wrote it, why they wrote it. But I want you to, to realize something. One of the biggest things, you're like, well, that's not exactly what they meant in this, uh, this or that. I've preached in different countries where they speak different languages and I've needed an interpreter. And I've learned something through those different moments of we have sayings in our English language that don't translate. Let me give you three of them. Cat got your tongue. He really hit a home run. I have butterflies in my stomach. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment, you went up to someone who spoke a different language than you on the other side of the planet and said, I have butterflies in my stomach right now. You know how, like, crazy that, like, why are you eating butterflies? Because for them, that's what, what is, they would assume, that if you have butterflies in your stomach, you must have had a butterfly sandwich for lunch. I don't know, like, that's kind of weird. That cat has your tongue, was it painful? That he really hit a home run, it's either, wow, like, they're a pretty good batter, or, like, what's a home run? We, we hear those three sayings, and we understand what those sayings mean. 
But for someone in a different culture or with a different language, they don't know what those three sayings mean. And so I've learned that when I write a sermon and then I go and preach it in a different country in a different language, I either have to make sure that that saying will translate or I have to remove it and say it a different way. But I can't just say, here's what I would preach to an English-American audience and I'm going to preach it to a Spanish-Nicaraguan audience and it's going to go exactly the same. No. I've got to find something that would communicate to them. So when we look at a lot of biblical translations, you have two different philosophies that even happen. You have word for word, and you have concept for concept. And most of the time when you hear someone who's translating, which it still blows my mind, like any time, any language that something's being translated, that you could listen to what I'm listening to and at the same time be either speaking another language or in the case of like Pastor Ron, being able to, uh, to sign it, to communicate it, and be able to take an idea that this person's saying and translate it into something that they would understand. And so you have those two different concepts, and that's one of the biggest things that, that people kind of war about. It's like, well, I prefer this version, or I prefer that version. It's because they prefer the word for word, or they prefer the concept for concept. That truth isn't thrown out the window, but it's different styles of doing that. You also then have uh, something that you would have, like the, the message version. Now, there's a couple different that do it. The, the message is the most prominent. You'll very rarely ever hear me preach the message version. And the reason being is it's a paraphrase, it's not a translation. A paraphrase, and now they're trying to move it into today's language. It's not just trying to translate it into our culture. It's trying to say it completely different to give us an analogy that we could better understand. And so that's where you can get to a spot where like, ooh, like, is that the inspired word of God? It's helping us understand it, but I can't call the message version divinely inspired. Make sense? Okay. And... Here's the thing, does the inspiration absolutely matter? The answer to that is absolutely yes. If this book is not inspired, then it doesn't matter any more than any other novel that you would find in a bookstore. Because if this isn't inspired, if this isn't the word of God, then everything we're doing makes no sense whatsoever. So we have to get to a spot where we accept that this is the, the word of God. Now, you might say, well, a couple minutes ago, you said you can't define car by saying the word car in the sentence. So how can you say the Bible is true by using the Bible? Well, one, we have a collection of books that speaks over a large period of time that validates and backs each other up to a level that would be ridiculous, uh, the amount of prophecies. And we're going to get into that in the next couple of weeks when we talk about Jesus being the Son of God. So be here for next week. That's going to help prove that point as well. We're In a few minutes, we're going to talk about how history and things that we have found architecturally, not architecturally, uh, archaeology uh, backs things up. So the Bible proves itself within and without uh, its contacts. But everything in this book, if we're saying it's inspired, it means that it's valid and its purpose is for today. That's when, when someone says, well, back in the early church, you could have the baptism of the Holy Spirit because that was for them, but it wasn't for us now. When did God say that it wasn't for today? Are we denying the power of God simply because we want to feel comfortable with our Christianity? Or do we want to say, okay, if God said it, then we're going to preach it. We're going to understand it. We're going to, uh, we're going to go after it. So how were the writers inspired? There's four different methods that were used to inspire the authors of the Bible. The first one is that God describes directly to the writer this is the case of Moses with the first several books of the Bible, that the creation of the universe and the human race, how could Moses write it if God didn't speak it to him? 
Now, you do have the oral tradition from one generation to the next to the next, and if you really look at the timeline, you start seeing that a lot of these people were alive. Like, you, you think like great, great, great grandpa Adam. Like, for a lot of people, like, Adam is alive for a significant amount of the time of the book of Genesis. We lose sight of that because we think in our kind of time period where he lived for 100 years and then he died, so it's only, like, his great-grandchildren that knew him. No, like, his great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren knew Adam. That Imagine being able to say, hey, great-great-great-great-great-grandpa Adam, like, why'd you guys mess up in the garden? Like, we all want to ask that question to Adam and Eve one day when we make it to heaven. When we get to heaven, I don't think we're going to care. But imagine being able to say, hey, great-great-great-great-great-grandpa Adam, why did you guys eat of that fruit? And be able to understand what, what's happened. So Moses gets this directly from God when he's up on the mountain. We have the, the writers actually witnessed the event, that you have individuals that witnessed the resurrection and Jesus' miracles. Let me just give a big proponent for the Bible, for the Gospels, for the New Testament. If we are individuals that saw Jesus die on the cross, go into the grave, was resurrected, walked around for 40 days, and then ascended back into heaven, we would feel pretty confident about backing our lives to that. If they didn't actually see it, and we have witnessed that all of these individuals that were following after, uh, after Jesus, his disciples, the apostles, that they died by being martyred, why would you be martyred for something that was false? Like, think that one through for a moment. If you were to tell me that I had to believe something, and if I believed it, I was going to die, but I didn't believe it to be true, I'm not going to believe it. You, they're either liars, lunatics, or Jesus Christ was who he said he was. You have the writers being inspired from copies from texts handed down from eyewitnesses. Like in the case of Luke, if you look at Luke 1, 1 through 4, you see him kind of breaking down of this is where I got some of this information from. And then we have God speaking directly to the prophets. And like in Jeremiah 30, 1 through 2, this is what the Lord says, that they're speaking on behalf of God Almighty who is speaking to them. One second, there we go. The, the Bible is the written word of God, and it tells us where we came from. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Our ultimate destiny, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. That the Bible tells us the purpose of our life. Matthew 28.19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It gives us practical instruction. Matthew 7.12, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Encouragement, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured for, from sinners such hostility against himself that, so that you you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. It gives us warnings. James 3.1, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that he, we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Wisdom, Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. 
and equips us for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible is what we need to be able to follow after what God has called us to do. It is true. It is inspired. Now, the Bible is comprised of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and both of them are inspired. Not just one, not just the other. Both of them are inspired. The Old Testament is made up of 39 books, being law, history, poetry, wisdom, prophets. It's written in Hebrew and Aramaic. And let me just even throw a little caveat in here, because sometimes it happens when uh, I do it a lot of times for, uh, for some of you in the room that you're like, well, when I look at the verse on the screen, you, you have he and the he is referencing God or referencing Jesus, and it's not capitalized. I want to let you know in a little secret here. In the Hebrew language, they don't have capital letters. So every single time that you have God written in the Old Testament, it's not capitalized. So some versions of the Bible decide to go with that and not capitalize it. And when you look at the Greek, they either use all caps or no caps. So when you, you ever see like a version of the Bible and it's like, well, the ESV, that, that definitely cannot be God's word because they don't capitalize the H when they refer to God. Yeah, neither did the Hebrew. And God's the one who spoke that to the writers and it's inspired. So sometimes you just need to not like, get worked up over little details. Make sense with me? All right. The Old Testament is a foreshadowing of Jesus and is pointing towards Jesus. Now, every time you hear me preach the Old Testament, it is always my goal to bring Jesus into the mix. Because I'm just preaching the Old Testament to you and I'm not sharing about Jesus, then I am missing the point of the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing us towards Jesus. And there's moments, even as you read the Old Testament, where it feels confusing, especially if you start in Genesis and you read all the way through, you're like, haven't I read this before? I feel like this story is the same as that story is the same as that story. Let me encourage you with something. At some point in time in your life, whether it's a Bible reading plan or you go out and you get a chronological Bible, read through the Bible in chronological order at least once in your life. Because if you do, what you'll realize and discover is you have these overlapping stories that all of a sudden you kind of bring them into the picture and like, oh, this was happening at the same time as this. I referenced this a couple weeks ago. I do this with the, the book of Psalms, that if you were to go through uh, my Bible that I have here, you would see me write like Psalm number, uh, or we did it during um, the Psalms uh, 23 message a couple weeks ago, that Psalms 23 was being written while King Saul was throwing spears at David. So when David is sitting at a table in the presence of his enemies, he's referring to what's actually happening in his life with King Saul. And so when we look at that and we understand those contexts, it helps us understand the Bible better. So reading through chronologically can really help you in that journey. The New Testament is 27 books. It has the gospel messages, the good news of Jesus, the acts of the church. It has the epistles that are letters written to individuals or churches. And then you have future prophecy that is still to be played out. It's largely written in Greek. So while the Bible is a unified book, there's differences between the Old and the New Testament, but they work together. The Old Testament is foundational. The New Testament builds on that foundation with further revelation of God. The New Testament is in the Old concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New revealed. Like, let that one sink in for a moment, that the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, 
And the Old Testament is in the new revealed. The, the Old Testament establishes principles that are seen to be illustrative of New Testament truths. The Old Testament contains many, many prophecies that are fulfilled in the New Testament by Jesus. The Old Testament provides a people's history. The New Testament focuses on a person, the person of Jesus. So the Old Testament, we see this people group that ultimately Jesus will come out of, the deliverer, the, the Son of God, will come out of this people group so that Jesus can then in turn make everybody free that can break everybody's chain, that there's freedom in Jesus Christ. He comes from this people group, but he comes for all people groups. That the Old Testament um, uh, shows the wrath of God against sin with glimpses of his grace. And the New Testament shows the grace of God towards sinner with glimpses of his wrath. You see, a lot of people will look at it and say, well, the Old Testament God is a God of wrath. I see a lot of grace in there too. And when I look at the New Testament, I see a lot of grace but I see that warning of wrath to come. God hasn't changed. What happens is we look at what we want to look at and say, well, God's a wrathful God. Is he a wrathful God? Because I'm pretty sure we're the ones who disobeyed and he's the one who sent Jesus to die on the cross for us. I'm, I'm pretty sure that he had every reason to say, you know what, like, that's what they wanted, I'm done. Go off to the earth 2.0, let me, let me start something different. Well, let, Satan can have this one. Instead, he made a rescue plan because he cares about us. So how do we understand the Old Testament? How do we understand and see that it's inspired? That a lot of times we can be intimidated and we can be confused by the Old Testament because we don't understand the culture and we don't understand the context. And this is why I come back again and again and again and I say you have to read your Bibles. You have to ask questions. You have to dig in. If you go back and watch on YouTube our series of how not to read the Bible, we talked about so many of these different issues. But when we understand the context and we understand what God's writing uh, through man, for us and speaking to us, all of a sudden we can see the character of God. And as we study the Old Testament, Jesus is the key that unlocks the Old Testament. And when you know who Jesus is, now all of a sudden the Old Testament can make sense. This is John 5, verses 36 through 40. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the work that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that, they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life." If we go to Jesus, then all of a sudden, the things in the Old Testament will make sense. The, the laws in the Old Testament that we could not fulfill, that Jesus is able to fulfill on our behalf for us. It's all about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. And the more we start looking like Jesus, the more either, one, our life begins to feel like it's on a solid foundation, and two, we're able to be effective for the kingdom. You see, it's not enough to say, you know what, I'm just trying to make it to heaven. Jesus wasn't trying to make it back to heaven. Jesus was trying to make a way to get all of us to heaven with him. And so for each and every one of us, if we say, you know what, my goal is just to make it to heaven, then we're missing the very point of why Jesus came in the first place. He didn't come because it was easy. He came because he loved you. And so for each and every one of us, as we go over to Jesus, we have to bring people with us. That's the goal. That's the mission. And when we look at the Old Testament, we start seeing that Jesus 
is in everything, that the Old Testament points forward to him. And that's what that passage of Scripture was trying to say. In every book of the Old Testament, we can see Jesus. Let me just give you a couple examples. Genesis, the light of the world, is Jesus. The Genesis 1, 1 through 3 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering around the face of the waters. And God said, here's the word, because remember, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. So how, what do we take from that? The story of earth is the story of man. That we have earth, we have man, both without form and void. Without purpose, they're empty. Darkness is covering the earth and the waters and is covering our hearts. The spirit moves upon the water and will move upon our hearts. And God said, let there be light. And Jesus is the light both of the world but also of our lives. Jesus is all over Genesis. We look at Exodus, the Passover lamb points forward to Jesus. When we look at Leviticus, the high priest points forward to Jesus. Deuteronomy, we have Moses being the deliverer for the people of uh, Israel out of Egypt, points forward to Jesus. Judges, we have a land without a king, shows us a land without Jesus. We have Ruth, we have her uh, having Boaz, the, the kinsman redeemer, foreshadows Jesus becoming our kinsman redeemer and redeeming us and making us whole. We can go on and on and on with the list, and the more we spend time in the inspired word of God, we'll start seeing, here's Jesus all over this book. You won't want to prove that it is? Start looking at the prophecies and the amount of prophecies. It's one of those things that always comes out at Christmas time of, this is the Jesus, the Messiah was going to have to be born in Bethlehem, and this and that, and we have all these different prophecies. The odds of these prophecies, I remember uh, sharing it once, I don't remember the exact depth, but it was to the equivalent of if you take the entire state of Texas, you cover it in silver dollars, and you paint one of them, let's just say blue, and then it's several feet high, let's say just, we'll make it low, two feet high all over the state of Texas, and you have to find on one try that blue silver dollar. That's the odds of Jesus fulfilling all the prophecies that the Bible tells us that he fulfilled. It's astronomical. I could drop you off in Dallas and I could say that that silver dollar is in El Paso. You're never going to find it. But Jesus is who Jesus is. That God set this all up. That's how we can take this to be true. But then you ask the question, how do we get the Bible? And for some of you, you're like, I just believe the Bible to be true. I want you to understand this because when people ask you the question, well, how do you know that book is true anyways? I want you to be able to answer. I want you to be able to say, well, because my pastor says so. When you get into a difficult conversation with someone and they want proof that the Bible is true, just saying, well, my pastor said so carries no weight whatsoever. That's like somebody saying, like, my, uh, my nutritionist says that Taco Bell is not good for you. My stomach says differently. Taco Bell is very delicious. And so I'm not going to really care about your nutritionist unless they're my nutritionist and they're telling me stop eating Taco Bell. Then I'll say, I went for a nine-mile run on Friday. I'm okay. <laughs> but so how did we get the Bible? I want you to be able to answer these for yourself. There was a remarkable amount of precision that was used in compromising the Bible that we have today. Far more detail and precision than any other book on the planet. From creation to the year 1400 B.C., this is the original, the earliest scriptures are handed down from generation to generation. This is where Adam is telling his children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren and his great-great-grandchildren. You go through, because when you start looking at how long some of these people lived, 
Anyone remember how long Methuselah lived? Almost a thousand years. So when I say from creation to 1400 BC, Methuselah lived almost that entire time period. Like, chew on that for a moment. So when we say that, like, oral tradition, this isn't like we're playing a game of telephone and I'm telling one side of the room and it passes all the way through to the other side of the room and we get some ridiculous answer on the other side. This is the matter of me telling each and every one of you in the room and saying, oh, yeah, that's the same story that great-great-great-great-great-grandpa uh, Adam has been telling all of us because he was there. So we have that validity in that context. But so then we have Moses living between uh, 1500 and 1300 B.C. And he has this encounter where he goes up with, with God. And God Almighty is telling him directly of what he is to write. The earliest accounts uh, go from this generation to generation in songs, in narratives, in poetry. Even when we look at Moses, what uh, household did he raise, was he raised up in? Pharaohs. What is one of the, the first earliest... Uh, forms of writing in human history, the Egyptians. And scripture tells us that he learned everything in the Egyptian household. So he would have been very familiar with writing systems of his time. Wow, it's amazing that God has all this kind of figured out. It's like he's God or something. <laughs> and that we read that God gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, the Ten Commandments that are inscribed by the finger of God. God's even giving it to us in writing at this point. All of this leads to the conclusion that the earliest writings in the Bible were set down about the year 1400 B.C. From 1400 to 400 B.C., the books of the Hebrew Old Testament, what they would call the Torah, were written. And these were all assembled together. Now, I want you to realize something with these uh, copies that we, we fast forward just a couple hundred years and we have the, the Septuagint, a popular Greek transition of the Old Testament that scholars had worked and put together that Jesus ultimately, when he comes on the scene and he begins preaching and he begins sharing the truth, we talked about a minute ago that he was speaking with authority, not as a scribe, but with authority because he knew the scripture. If there is something that was wrong with the Torah, with something wrong with what we call the Old Testament today, Jesus would have called it out. We can have full assurance that if Jesus is God and we're worshiping Jesus and we're following after Jesus, that there's nothing in doubt in the Old Testament. Because Jesus would have been, you know what, actually when my father created everything, he actually did this. This got translated wrong. We need to, we need to make a correction. Jesus would have the ability to do that, but he doesn't. Throughout his teachings, he quotes the Torah. He quotes what we call the Old Testament. And then you get to the fact that when they were even translating this, they were not permitted to translate and copy by memory. They had to look at every single letter. That when you start looking at even at the New Testament when they translated it, if there was a single mistake, it had to get thrown out and they had to start over again. I want you to think, you don't get to use an eraser. And you have to write in this like perfect symbols and everything. One, like how many of you are like, I, I would probably struggle with that. Can I type? You're like, I can't even type it right. And I've got spell check. I've seen some of your text messages to me. You, get the, you got random words in there. But they are held to such a high standard that if there was a mistake or they were trying to go by memory, that gets thrown out. From AD 45 to 85, so this is after Jesus, the Greek New Testament is written during this time period. The apostles of Jesus, many of which were eyewitnesses to his life and ministry, wrote the New Testament. In AD 397, 
the Council of Catheridge establishes the Orthodox New Testament canon, the 27 books. In 1382, the first complete English language version of the Bible, dated from uh, 1382, was credited to John Wycliffe and his followers. In AD 1604 to 1611, King James assembles 54 scholars at Westminster, Oxford, and Cambridge to translate the Bible. They wanted to go for a word-to-word uh, translation, not a paraphrase. But I want you to hear something. You're like, well, that's fine. That Here's the church trying to make the, the Bible look what they want the Bible to look like. I want to prove that this goes all the way back. This isn't just people saying, you know what, well, this is what I want the Bible to say. How many of you have, have heard of this? He's kind of a famous philosopher at one point in human history, Aristotle. Does anyone question Aristotle's works? Like everybody just kind of says, well, yeah, that's Aristotle. Aristotle's works have... They found 1,000 manuscripts that dated 1,200 years after the original event. The closest that they have to his original writings is 1,200 years later. They have found 1,000 copies. And human history tells us that's good enough. When we look at Plato, you guys ever heard Plato before? Not, not like the, the dough, that Play-Doh, but Plato, that he has 210 manuscripts that were dated 1,200 years from the events, but nobody calls his works in the question. That we have Caesar's first-hand account of the, the, the Gaelic Wars has 251 manuscripts dated 900 years from the events. Then we get to something that's perhaps a little bit more reliable, even though it's kind of a made-up story. The Homer's uh, Iliad, the history of the Trojan War, has 1,757 manuscripts, and it was dated 400 years from the events. All these things are attributed to their authors and treated as if, as if they actually wrote them and that they're actually true. In first place, though, is the Bible's New Testament. The Bible's New Testament has an account of manuscripts available today that have been discovered of the number of 25,000. But yet we call the Bible in the question. Because if we hold the Bible to be the inspired word of God and we hold the Bible to be true, then that means we have to live differently. Plato can be real, and I don't have to agree with him. Aristotle can be real, and I don't have to agree with him. Homer's Odyssey can be be real, and there's no cyclopses that are coming in chasing me. But we, we treat that to be true. But here's the thing I want you to realize. Of those 25,000 manuscripts, 5,795 of them are Greek manuscripts that are dated 30 to 150 years from the events. That means they wrote it, and then they immediately began making copies that were letter perfect, that were copies not from memory. Over 7,974 manuscripts were found in other languages, Armenian, Coptic, Gothic, Ethiopian, Syriac, Georgian, and Slavic, dated early 2nd century and on, 100 to 150 years afterwards. And over 10,000 manuscripts were found uh, in, in Latin, dated from the 3rd century and on, 300 to 350 years. All of those tr uh, versions were found substantially closer to the actual events than any of these other things, but... Mankind doesn't want the Bible to be true because then it changes the way we live. So you can say, well, if we accept these other things to be true, then we have to accept the Bible to be true. Well, criteria was used to create this inspired word of God. For the New Testament, it had to be written by a recognized apostle or someone who was associated with a recognized apostle. So that basically means like we look at like John, we look at Peter, we, like anyone like that, they get to write a gospel or someone who learned directly underneath them. But if you've got, we're second generation, 
then you're too far gone. I had the opportunity to, to sit in a, a seminar conference with Mark Batterson this week and get to meet him. He's one of my favorite authors, favorite pastors. I love hearing him speak. I got to, to meet him and talk with him for a moment. Mark Batterson can't write a book of the New Testament. He can't. He could write the best book that has been written since the New Testament, but it cannot go into the New Testament because he doesn't meet one of those two qualifications. The third one is it has to be truthful, that it has to line up with everything else in Scripture. If it contradicts Scripture, it cannot go in the New Testament. That it has to be faithful to the previous writings, and that it has to be confirmed by Christ's prophets or the apostles, and that the church usage and recognition at the time. Basically, people are like, well, what about this random book that we have half the letter to, and we can't prove anything, but we kind of like what it says because it, it seems interesting. It seems like uh, there's uh, some drama going on. I want to read that book. Like, can I, can I get the gospel of Judas? Can I get the gospel of, of this or that? Let's just focus on what God's actually given us. If God wanted that book in the Bible, and we're saying that God is all-powerful, and that God is all-knowing, and that uh, God is all-present, then God could have got whatever he wanted in the Bible. If God didn't put it in, he didn't want it there. Stop focusing on all that stuff and focus on what he's given us. And then I want to get you to some, uh, just a couple of scripture passages as we go to close in just a moment. These are scripture passages that explain that it is inspired, uh, the, the Bible is the inspired word of God. This is 2 Timothy 3, 15 to 17. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. First Thessalonians 2.13. And we also thank God consistently for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. In 2 Peter 1.21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but man, or men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This book is either the inspired word of God or it's not. And if it's not, then what in the world are we doing? But if it is, this book cannot sit on your shelf untouched. I mean, the almighty... God of the universe has given us an instruction manual how to live life. I know we joke sometimes with like, people when they have their first child of an instruction manual didn't come out with that child. Like you don't know what you're doing. Th this is not an Ikea instruction manual where there's a bunch of random pictures and they don't make sense. God literally tells us how to live our life and how to look like Jesus and what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to seek him and how we're supposed to follow him. We just got to open up and do it. It's not hard. We have the foundation. Now, life is hard. Storms will come. But when we build our life on this foundation, then we know that God is good. Now, here's what I, I want to end with. And I know over the course of the last like, uh, couple months, we've ended with an altar time. It's the reason why we had four songs in the beginning and not one here. Is It's hard to say, let's have a, a response time where we say the scriptures are inspired. No, you got to go and do something with it. So I want to pray with you right now that this, this very moment, you would say, you know what, the scriptures are inspired, I know that they're inspired, I'm going to make a commitment to read my Bible on another level than I had before because God's got to speak truth to me because this world needs it. God's got to transform me and God's got to make me look more like Jesus because this world needs it. 
Or if you're sitting here like, I don't know if it's inspired. Here's going to be my prayer for you. That God would show up and make himself so real that if you would make a commitment of getting into this, that God would begin speaking to you and confirming what you're reading through other Christians coming up to you or life situations where all of a sudden you're like, wow, that, that's completely true. God, God shared something with me, and I'm not going to share it yet, uh, when I was in the, the conference with Mark Batterson. And in the first session, he dropped it into my heart. In the second session, he confirmed it. And then I had something afterwards come back it up. And I'm like, okay, God, you're speaking to me. If you're speaking to me and you're confirming what you're telling me, then I got to do it. And the way you hear from God is you get into God's word. Then all of a sudden, when God speaks something, you're like, yep, that lines up with scripture. Okay, we're good. Let's do it, God. So this is going to be my prayer for you, that you would have a, a passion for the inspired word of God or that God would reveal to you that it's his inspired word if you're still saying, I don't know about this, so that we can go out and we can make people, make ourselves look like Jesus and then we can go share Jesus with other people. Amen? Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much that we have the opportunity to enter into your presence, that we have the opportunity to even be able to put our hands on this Bible, on this inspired word that you spoke and that you care so much about, that you gave to us. Lord, I pray that it's so easy for an American household to have so many copies but never touch it, never open it, never read it, never engage with it. Lord, I pray for this church and for every individual in this room and every individual that is in our kids' ministry right now. Lord, that each person that is in this building would desire to have a passion for your word in a way that we haven't before. Lord, that we would seek to know you and to know your word. Lord, that we would want to open up our Bibles on a consistent basis. We would want to spend time in your word and in your presence so that you would be able to communicate to us what we are to do so that we can impact the world that desperately needs you. So for those that already accept it to be your inspired word, Lord, I pray give it in them a passion uh, and a desire to read your scripture in a way that they haven't had in a long time. Or if they already have it, Lord, I pray that you give a double anointing of that desire to read your word. That they would seek your face because this world needs you and your mission is to use us to make disciples of all people. And Lord, if there is anyone in this room today that they say, you know what, I'm not so sure about Jesus. I'm not so sure about this being the inspired word of God. Lord, same thing I pray over them. That they would honestly give this Bible a try, that they would open it up and that they would study, that they would read your Gospels, that they would read about what the early church did, and they would allow an honest chance to have you speak to them, speak through them, and be able to challenge them. And Lord, I pray as they seek your word that you would show yourself up to them and speak to them directly, that you would send someone in their pathway, that you would do something that would confirm that which they're reading, that which they're understanding, so that they can walk in your ways. Well, I thank you so much that you're God, that you're good, and that you gave us your word. And Jesus is an incredible name. Amen. Well, as we go to close, would you go ahead and stand with me? We're going to say the Great Commission together. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age.